why Ripley's, believe it or not. Anyway, you'll see how it comes to pass soon. Okay, if you're new to the surge, and I see a couple of people that are, welcome, welcome, welcome. Great to have you guys here today. Welcome all you people who are regular comers as well. Uh, we are teaching, as you know, uh, most of you, through the Gospel of John, and we've taken occasional breaks here and there, but just to let you know, this marks our 53rd message in the Gospel of John. So we're, we're, we're covering every verse, trying to get the depth of it as we go through. We're finishing up chapter 12 today. Uh, let's read the passage together, then we'll see what God has in store for us from it. All right? On the screen, you'll see it. John chapter 12, starting in verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. We'll kind of explain the backdrop as we get into it. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then the quote, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let me pray for us, then we'll dig in. God, thank you for this time in your word. Uh, we like to go through it verse by verse because we uh, then can't just pick our choose and favor our favorite subjects. We have to deal with all the stuff that you say, and we want to do that. So as we dig into this passage, we pray that you would descend upon us, that you would give us open hearts and minds, that we would be willing to hear and then willing to do what you say. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so what we have here in this last paragraph in chapter 12 is the author's survey of people who listened to and watched Jesus while he was on the earth. And we get Jesus' thoughts on some of those people, too. Uh, there are some who come to believe in Jesus, and there are some who don't. Believe it or not, that's the title of the message, <laughs> actually. I think, it's, I think it's good maybe for every generation to sort of step back for a second and take stock uh, and note those people in their culture uh, who believe or don't believe in Christ. Uh, it might astound you to know that George Barna, one of the foremost uh, pollers of folks uh, figuring out what people believe and what people think, he discovered this about our current culture just recently. Here's two of his conclusions. I'm just going to throw them out, and then we'll, we'll talk about that. Here's what he says. 
of those who say in America that they are born-again Christians, only 46% believe in absolute moral truth. So I think flipping the poll around just a little bit on its head helps us uh, digest what's really going on. What this means is that more than half of all the people who claim to be born-again Christians do not believe in absolute truth. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, these 54% go, no, you're not. No, you're not, because truth isn't fixed. It's, it's relative. I, I get to decide what's, what's true for me. Barney dug even further, finding this. Again, I quote, Less than half of those who say they're born-again Christians in America reject the notion that you can earn your salvation. Again, flipping the poll around, I think helps us focus on the cultural nightmare in our country, which is more than half of those people who are in America claiming to be born-again Christians actually say that you can work your way or earn your way to heaven. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the life, these 54% would say, no, you're not. There are lots of other ways to eternal life, other paths. All it takes is for you to be sincere. So look, putting those two indicators together, we can conclude this. Fewer than half of the people in America who call themselves born-again Christians actually believe in and follow the Jesus Christ he claimed to be while walking around on this earth in a human body. These are people that would fall into the unbelief category, the I don't believe in Jesus group, even though they may think they do. Now, this section that we're dealing with is kind of important. It's the transitional phase. When I say it's transitional, it's because the public ministry of Jesus is officially ending. The crowd is now shut out. You might remember what's happened He's come off the Mount of Olives riding in on a donkey, and he's got a crowd behind him who are all fascinated with the resurrection of Lazarus, and they've already, already talked about people about that, and you've got a crowd coming out of Jerusalem to meet him who have heard the witness of this resurrection of Lazarus, and they're come to see Jesus, and they're shouting all kinds of things, proclaiming him to be the Messiah, blah, blah, blah. But then there is more discussion inside the temple, apparently, and a lot of these people kind of go, wait a minute here. Maybe you're not the Messiah after all, because we had this understanding of the Messiah. Here's what's going to happen, and you're not talking about that. You're talking about going to the cross and dying, and what we expected is you to kind of raise up a military force and crush the Romans and get us back to be able to do what we want to do without the Romans' oppression. And so at this point, he's going, okay, I'm going to step away from the crowd. I'm going to hang out with my, my people. I'm going to spend most of the next five or six chapters just with the disciples, um, it's very personal and intimate conversation, but it's also very open. When we're going to go through this, you're going to see that there's so much stuff in here for us as Christians as Jesus is trying to train and uh, educate and exhort and encourage those disciples. So the public ministry basically ends in verse 36. Uh, Jesus has made one final appeal to the crowd. He said this, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. At this, time, at this point, he's done trying to persuade the unbelievers. In between uh, ending his public ministry and beginning the next one, he's, uh, John, the writer, provides this summary statement that we read about people who believe and people who don't based upon what Jesus has said. 
And there are three principles that uh, has kind of laid out that's articulated here in this transitional uh, phase, passage. So Jesus' three principles on belief and unbelief. One, unbelief is dangerous. Secondly, belief can also be a little dangerous. And then unbelief and belief end up with very different consequences. So let's begin with unbelief is dangerous. And look at the first five verses. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is a quote from Isaiah 53, if you're taking notes. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. And then a quote from Isaiah 6. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his, Jesus, glory and spoke of him. So in these verses, we see this first principle, that unbelief is dangerous. Um, Isn't it amazing to read that they they didn't believe in him? Even though John tells us that they had seen all the evidence and had all of it before them for faith in, in Christ. They saw all the miracles, they heard all his words, had all the evidence to weigh this on the scales of belief or unbelief, but they would not. In fact, Benny, back in uh, chapter 6, they, after they got fed this amazing meal <laughs> out of nothing with Jesus produced, they just walked away because they didn't like the stuff he was saying. So what things did Jesus do? He, we got several miracles that John highlights. Um, he turned water into wine at the wedding. He walked on the water, Sea of Galilee. He calmed the storm, wind and rain. They thought they were all going to die in the boat. He took a few loaves, fed 15 to 20,000 people. It says they fed 5,000, but that's just the men. So figure the families, wives, and all that kind of stuff. Probably had 10, 15, 20,000 people with a couple of pieces of bread and a little bit of fish. Uh, he healed a nobleman's son in a long-distance miracle. Tells the guy, hey, go ahead and go, ahead and go home. He's, he's, your son's going to live. He heals a paralyzed guy in chapter 5. He heals a man born blind from birth in chapter 8. Uh, then there's the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, of Lazarus, which is basically the crowning um, miracle. And if you count up all the miraculous signs in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can, somewhere between 34 and 40 miracles are, that demonstrates his power over nature, power over disease, power over all kinds of, all kinds of afflictions, uh, handicapped stuff and all that kind of stuff, over demons, over death itself. So when we say miracle, we actually are talking about real miracles, not the miracle where people wake up in the morning and see a really great sunrise, and they go, oh, let's send it off, and it's a miracle. No, no, it's not. It's just natural. It happens every day. Sun comes up. Sometimes it's get a little bit of haze with you, get dust in the air. It can be red or all the oranges and all that kind of stuff. A miracle is where God actually intervenes in the natural law that he produced when he created this creation uh, to do something by supernatural forces. It's a suspension of natural law that God made to do something supernatural. And these people that we're reading about saw all those signs. They were unmistakable indicators that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and someone that people maybe should put their faith in. So not to believe in him based on all the evidence kind of demonstrates a resistance in the face of facts. It's, it's really less... I can't believe, I don't have enough information to believe. What really is going on, quite honestly, is, you know, I don't, I don't really care what he does. I don't really care what he says. I am not going to believe. I refuse to believe as an act of my will. And then John quotes two passages from the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah, 
uh, and then uh, in two passages. And so the question is, why does John include those? Well, I think it's pretty simple. John wants us to know that man's unbelief didn't take God by surprise. He knew about it all along. In fact, he, he predicted it long before they came on the scene. It'd be fun to tell somebody you're talking to as an unbeliever, wouldn't it be? <laughs> you shouldn't do this, but it'd be fun to do it, to say, oh, I, okay, you're an unbeliever, great. You know, God knew all about your unbelief you know, when he created the universe. He, he, knew, he knew you were coming as an unbeliever. Okay, so you shouldn't probably do that, but that would be fun to do. So the ardent unbeliever, the shake-your-fist-at-God kind of person, uh, the agnostic, the atheist or whatever, it doesn't really throw God off his game at all. If God doesn't go, oh my gosh, maybe they have a point. He doesn't do, he doesn't do that. He's got it all figured out. Right? That's why John quotes Isaiah. That said, there's a danger in unbelief. And this is what I want you to see. And it's easy to see as you compare these two verses. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So that's, that's an act of your will. Right? But look at verse 36, 39. Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes. In other words, so follow me, if you will. Their unwillingness to believe eventually became their incapacity to believe. You know, unbelief is kind of like a two-layered cake. Think of it this way. Uh, The bottom layer is like human choice human will, my, my decision, what I, what I think about God, what I think about Jesus, whatever you put on that layer, God's going to come along and kind of put another layer on top of it that kind of strengthens and fortifies that decision. And we actually find this whole concept explained in the really wonderful but sometimes hard to digest book of Romans. In chapter 1, God says, I have, I have revealed myself through creation to every single human being who has ever lived on the planet and ever will live on the planet. If someone sees natural creation and ponders it and, can, and concludes, okay, I, I am not going to accept that God's involved in this in any way, shape, or form, God says this, okay, fine. Because of that, I'm going to give you over to a futility in your thinking. By rejecting the truth, my truth, God would say, uh, you now have little recourse but to kind of you know, build your life on whatever lies you invent. And thus you will fall increasingly deeper and deeper into lies for lies that carry you to deeper and deeper sin. Uh, so if you say, well, yeah, I don't believe in Jesus. It's my choice. God says, great, fine. I will come along. I'll put my layer of strength on that. And along the path, you just heart, your heart just gets increasingly hardened. Listen, you tell me, how else can you explain how we find ourselves in this country with surgeons who have committed to do no harm surgically emasculating our young people whom God made male and female and who will still, with DNA tests, show that they are still the male and female that God made them to be despite the surgeries and the drugs and the hormones. So if we don't manage to kill them in utero, we look to destroy them after the birth. Professing ourselves to be wise, God says, we have become fools. Do you not see it? 
We saw this phenomenon play out with Pharaoh and God over the enslaved Israelites, didn't we? Remember, God says to Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But then what we see happen is Pharaoh hardens his own heart, then he hardens it again, and then he hardens it again as the, uh, as the plagues and stuff beset his country. Finally, God says, okay, I'm, now I'm going to harden your heart. If that's your decision, you're going to make it over and over and over again. I'm just going to fortify that decision. And the futility of Pharaoh's thinking at the end led him to lead his country to utter ruin and his entire army, including himself, to die in the Red Sea. So I've got to tell you something. I do believe this. If you make a decision for God, toward God, you confirm your heart toward him, God's going to also come along and strengthen and confirm that decision. He will intervene in your life to confirm the wisdom of that decision, which only propels you to deepening levels of faith and belief. But the opposite is also true. Those who persistently reject Jesus over time will find their hearts hardened. Listen, extreme example, I've often wondered why it is that Satan wants this incredibly beautiful angel uh, who sought to overthrow God, and a third of the angels went with him in that rebellion. He was cast out. I'm wondering why he hasn't come to his senses yet. I mean, God predicts a death blow to Satan in Genesis chapter 3. Satan gets that message that he's doomed, and he does everything he can possible to prevent the Messiah that's going to deal him the death blow from actually showing up on the scene, including trying to extinguish the human race. But once the Messiah shows up, Satan thought, okay, here's what we'll do now. We will see if we can kill him some way, kill him when he was a youngster, or kill him on the cross. Unfortunately for him, God used the cross to declare his victory through the resurrection. So look, look, it's clear and should be to Satan that he's going down. If it's so obvious, why hasn't he like, okay, maybe if I just go confess to God, okay, I repent, confess to God, maybe God would forgive me. Why haven't some of the one of the third of the angels that went with them, they can read, they can see what Revelation says, where this thing is going. How come they haven't done it either? Here's why. He can't. He can't. Hearts are too hardened. Pride won't let them at this point. Satan can read, like I say, Revelation like we can. Clearly, he thinks he's either going to either get the last word or that God's word is wrong, even though it's never been wrong, and he's kind of experienced that through his entire view of history. It seems, it seems like Satan would rather spend an eternity in judgment than to believe. Believe is just a bridge too far for him. And so it is for unbelievers who reject Christ. So if people have any spiritual sensitivity at all, it's probably a, probably a good idea to move towards God because unbelief is dangerous, and that's our first principle. It's, un, it's dangerous because it's progressive. It's progressive. What starts off as your unwillingness will end up as your incapability of believing. Okay, second point Jesus makes. Belief can also be dangerous. Belief can be dangerous. Listen, look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. So, right there, stop. That's, that sounds like a breath of fresh air, right? Somebody's believing. Well, hold that thought, because here's what comes next. But, and but's always a dangerous word in Scripture. It means, uh-oh, uh-oh, look out. 
But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You ever thought about your faith being dangerous? Probably not, unless you've lived in a country where you were persecuted for your faith or something. If you lived in that kind of a place where it might mean death, then you suddenly realize that faith can be hazardous to your physical health. Uh, the threat of persecution naturally leads some to a second danger that we see here in this passage, which is kind of compromise and cowering, and that's what's happening here. So I'm going to jog your memory just a little bit. Remember back in chapter 9, Jesus heals the man blind from birth. He had a big confrontation with the, the Pharisees uh, they, in, in the temple uh, area, and they pick up stones to kill him because they don't like what he's saying about being God and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, he's walking around, and he comes to this guy, probably just outside the temple, uh, who's been blind from birth. And so he puts some spit, spit in a little dirt, and he rubs the guy's eyes with it, and he says, go wash your eyes out in this pool, and the guy does that. And uh, so he guy gets healed, and everybody goes, well, this is a miracle. Nobody's healed somebody who's been blind from birth. So they bring the guy in for a chat, and then they bring his parents in for a chat. And their response to, I love this, they're questioning the parents. And the parents go, here's their their response to the questions. We don't know nothing. We know nothing about this. Ask our son yourself. He's of age. In essence, they're throwing the son under the the vehicle, right? Um, But we're told why they gave that crazy answer. They did it because they knew that if anyone were to confess Jesus as the Christ or the Son of God, they would be put out of the synagogue. That's five English words, but in Greek, it's only one word. It's un, the word is unsynagogued. We would say excommunicated. So the Pharisees had declared this to be a law, not a law God made, a law that they made up, one of the other the myriad laws that they made up. This is one of them. Their law was that if you believe in Jesus, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. You will have nothing to do with Jewish life, you will have no social standing in the community. No one will do business with you. You won't be able to sell anything. You won't be able to buy anything. You'll be a total outcast. Well, that was the fear raging in these parents' minds. That kind of persecution led many of them, including the ones we just read about in our passage, to compromise. That's the danger. That's why I say faith can be dangerous too. I liken this a little bit to Jesus' parable of the sower. He throws out seed, and some of the seed hits the ground, and all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, okay, all of a sudden, it sprouts up really quickly. looks like it's a real thing. Unfortunately, it's overtaken by the weeds or the cares of this world. It withers and dies. Oh, turns out it wasn't the real thing after all. Officially, Open Doors, I think I got a map on the, on the screen for you. Open Doors is an organization which provides the most in-depth investigative reporting on global Christian persecution across the globe. And it says that the number of Christians abducted, arrested, killed for their faith has really increased sharply in recent years. Um, I've included uh, the Open Doors Global Watch list of countries uh, where persecution is, is pretty entrenched. In, 19, or in 2022, the number of Christian martyrs officially rose every day. Uh, 16 Christians killed every day for their faith. It's about 500 a month. The problem is that the real number has got to be far higher because many of the 50 countries on the world's watch list are closed countries, like North Korea, Afghanistan, or conflict-ridden places like uh, Somalia or Nigeria. 
Killing Christians there is often done in secret, goes unreported. No one at a North Korean prison camp you know, the, is, is going to report how many Christians they killed this week or some radical military leader in Nigeria. They're not reporting on the number of Christians they slaughter. Yet Open Doors has talked to thousands of believers and refugees and Christians who report on those who are dying for their faith in those areas. So the same statisticians will tell you that if you put all the believers in the world together in one group, it's estimated that one out of every 200 Christians will be martyred in his or her lifetime. Now, we're dealing here in America with something that's just basically philosophical, right? You and I don't see that kind of persecution here, that kind of martyrdom in our country. I mean, you believe what you believe, and people generally leave you alone. They don't care if you put a bumper sticker on your car that much, right? But that could change in our country. I think some of us are kind of sensing that. Back in 2004, 11 people in Philadelphia, including two women in their 70s, were arrested for sharing the gospel with somebody on the sidewalk. They were arrested on the suspicion of violating Pennsylvania's hate crime law, which includes what someone says. Right now, 46 U.S. states have passed similar hate crime legislation that could easily be used to declare that pastors who teach God's word are haters if what is taught makes certain individuals and groups out there in the culture uncomfortable or feel bad or whatever. So don't be surprised when hate crime is used to go after anyone who does not fully embrace what culture says is true, even if God says it's wrong. Look, globally, hate speech is booming. Hate crime legislation is booming. Uh, Council of Europe, for example, covers 46 countries. They initiated, initiated a, a no-hate crime uh, sort of movement back in the 90s. Innocently enough, actually, what they were really trying to do at the, at the onset was to deal with uh, anti-Semitism and those who would argue that the Holocaust never happened or the genocides and war crimes never happened. It now incorporates intolerance against Muslims. So you can see how proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to God could be interpreted by some as intolerance against other belief systems and therefore hate speech or hate crime. Okay, I tell you all of that to get to this point. The reason I raised any of that was, was that there's a danger in believing in Christ. And here's what's foundational to us, I think, as humans. Uh, if you are a human being, and I suspect many of you out there are, just don't know for sure. Some of you could be AIs, I don't know. But if you are a human being, you'll be able to relate to this. We have, I think, a fundamental interest, desire as human beings to be, right, accepted, to be liked, to, to be loved. No one likes to be unpopular. Most people do not go out of their way to have people hate them deliberately, right? We all kind of want to be liked. We want to be loved. So here's the, here's the temptation in that drive we have as humans. Belief in Jesus is dangerous simply because it places me, you, us, in a position to want to compromise what I, we, you, us, believe and say in order to get people around us, you, me, us, to like me or us. So that pressure might lead me to be a little bit less bold in my faith for Jesus Christ because, you know, they are going to say some bad things about me. They won't like me. 
I'll be shunned, or in this case, thrown out of the synagogue. The Apostle Paul asks a really cool question, a relevant question in Galatians chapter 1, and then he answers it, so it might be useful to get a look at his take. Paul says this, as we've said before, so he's not, he's not starting something new, he's already said it before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, this is the one from Paul who got it from Jesus, right? Let him be accursed, for, I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I, am, I trying, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, you, 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 please, you try to please man, or you can try to please Christ, you're not going to be able to do both. So I'll, I'll paraphrase what he says. Belief by faith in Jesus is paramount to me, Paul says, and it should be to you guys as Christians. I don't really care what anybody thinks about me, Paul says, or about my life. I do care about the approval of one person and one person only, and that's Jesus Christ. What he thinks about me, infinitely more important than what anybody else thinks about me. And you guys, as Christians, Paul would say, should think that way too. If you don't think that way, you're not really serving Christ. Even if you proclaim that you are, even if you think you are, because you are compromised. In other words, your belief is a facade with little substance. So this group, verses 42 and 43, they're trying to pull off something that's basically impossible. You know what it is? It's secretly following Jesus. It's impossible. Following Jesus in secret is a contradiction in terms because what will eventually happen is that the following of Jesus will destroy the secrecy or the secrecy will destroy the following of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be able to keep it secret. They tried to do that. Why? Because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Proverbs warns us about this. Probably a verse you've heard. Fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. If that's not really clear, I'll give you a more modern translation. Don't fall into the trap of being a coward. Trust the Lord and you'll be safe. That's from the contemporary English version. Listen, let's go back to the chapter 9. Guy born blind that Jesus healed. His parents were afraid, so they wobbled, seeking glory from man rather than glory from God. Interestingly, the Pharisees then call in the guy who got healed, and he stands in front of them unabashedly and proclaims, Jesus is a guy sent from God. Well, that did not fit the narrative that the Pharisees had because they believed that Jesus should be killed. They've already made a decision to do that, so they boot the guy out of the synagogue. The next thing we read is this. Jesus hears about this uh, event, and he looks the guy up, and he walks up to him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man, i.e. the Messiah? And the guy says, sure enough, just point him out to me. I'll go and worship him or whatever. Jesus said, well, you've seen him, and it's me. <laughs> the guy says unabashedly, I believe, falls on the ground, worships him on the spot, apparently in full view of some of the Pharisees who are always flocking around Jesus to make sure he was doing something right or wrong so he could, they could charge him with something. That's, that's a guy with full-on belief, full-on commitment, full-on courage, utterly amazing. So two dangers so far, danger of unbelief, and number two, the danger of compromise if you, if, if you want to be a believer. 
You want to believe, but you value what people think over what God thinks. So your belief is compromised and ultimately, therefore, bogus, as Paul would say. Finally, we wrap up the third principle, dramatically different consequences produced. We see this in verses 48, 44 to 50. Jesus cries out, says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. But judgment's coming, right? He didn't come to judge the world this, this, this particular visit. He came to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. What or are they? The words that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but I, the Father who sent me, has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. Jesus said this all over the place. I'm not, I'm not making anything up here. I'm following my Father's instructions. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, is the Father has told me. Okay, so here's Jesus' final words before his public ministry officially ends and his private ministry begins. He holds up belief, holds up unbelief. Here's what he finds. Belief honors God. Unbelief does not. Belief makes one's life brighter, brings light. Unbelief darkens it. Belief secures eternal life. Unbelief just secures judgment. So let's go through these three, and then we'll wrap up. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. In other words, if you believe in me, you're not just believing in me alone. That's what his point is. Along with believing in me, you are actually believing in the God who sent me, my Father. We are so together on this. You can't separate us. We're so in sync. Now, this is kind of important because what we have is a group of people in Jerusalem around Jesus who were saying, oh, we believe in God. We believe in God the Father. We believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is saying, oh, really? Really? You say you believe in God, but if you reject me, you do not realize you're also rejecting God because it was God my Father who sent me into the world for you. That's the point. Belief in Jesus honors God. Belief does not. Here's the larger point. You place your faith in Christ, you trust and follow him, you're going to be honoring God the Father. It wasn't it God who loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son? Right? Listen. Writer of Hebrews said this in chapter 1. God who at different times and in different ways communicated to our ancestors the prophets, through the prophets. He, in these final days, he has spoken to us by his own son, Jesus Christ. In other words, everything God wanted to say to people on planet Earth, he said finally and conclusively through Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's answer for the sin problem of humanity. And we read, we read this a few verses back in, in recent weeks. It says, the world will not honor you, but if you live to honor God, my Father will honor you. So here's the choice we get to make as humans. If you're going to follow Christ as his disciple in this world, understand the world's not going to love you for it. The world's going to persecute you. So you have to decide for yourself, which road am I going to take? Where am I going to walk on this place? What side am I going to be on? So let me give you a little encouragement. In the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. Uh, they're almost like postcards, just a few words to each church. The second postcard he writes is to the church at Smyrna. 
They were being persecuted simply because they loved Jesus, they followed him faithfully, and they were very vocal about it. They started losing their jobs, so they became poor. Many of them lost their lives because of the persecution. So Jesus writes them this letter. Here's what it says. Dear Smyrna, I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. But you are rich. See the difference between the world's evaluation of that church? Poor, beat up, destitute, martyred, and Jesus' evaluation of that church? Rich and honoring to God. Yeah, you've been beaten up and killed. But boy, you might be poor on a human level, but man, I've got to tell you something. You are, where it really matters, rich. So number one, belief honors God. Unbelief does not. Second point, belief brightens life. Unbelief darkens it. We see this in verse 46. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. So we've covered this before. There's a dominant theme in the Gospel of John. very first paragraph of John even says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Then we come to chapter 8, one of the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In other words, belief brightens your life. It allows you to see things clearly. Unbelief darkens it. You're looking at life through the mud. It's like you're driving down the highway and you got your front windshield is covered in tar. Good luck with that, right? It's not going to go well for you. What do you do when you come home? It's dark. You turn on the light. You live in a dark world. We live in a dark world. What do you do in a dark world? Flip on the light. Follow the light. Walk in the light. Follow Jesus Christ because I got to tell you something. Like a flower in darkness, it ain't going to bloom unless it can be brought into the light where it gets the nourishment it needs and it blossoms. Human beings really can never become what God wants them to become until they step into the light of Christ. I said it before, medical science can add years to your life, but Jesus can only add life to your years. Okay, the last one, eternal life versus judgment. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, in verse 47, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, before we get all too excited about that, because that sounds like a really cool verse, doesn't it? I love that verse. Jesus doesn't judge. He's just a nice guy. He just loves everybody. I'm going to circle that in my Bible, make it my life verse, so I can do anything I want to do without any fear. (laughs) Hold that thought there, dude, because what Jesus is talking about is what he's up to on his first trip to earth, right? This trip is all about his purpose as the Savior of mankind. So to die on the cross, and then to train some guys to help carry the the gospel forward. But failure to acknowledge him as Savior and believe and follow him is going to result ultimately in judgment. So it's best to keep on reading so you don't fool yourself, right? Verses 48 to 50. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. What is the judge? Oh, the word that I've spoken. will judge him on the last day. And I have not spoken on my own authority. I'm not making this up. This is uh, right from my father's voice, right? Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. You go down there and you say this and you do this and you follow this. And he's doing all this under God's uh, direction. In fact, he said that a lot. I'm not here to do my own thing. I'm taking my advice, taking my counsel, taking my direction from him. And he knows that what, he, he's, follow, he, what he's giving out is eternal life. And he's doing what the Father told him. We got Jesus making it very plain and simple here. 
He plays us into the future. Here's where belief lands you. Eternal life. Oh, the consequences of unbelief? Judgment. Guilty verdict. Condemnation. You might say, well, Dwayne, you said earlier that he didn't come to judge. Well, you're, you're half right. Well, the first time Jesus came on the earth, he came to die on the cross, not to make judgment. But I've got to tell you something. The second time he shows up, different story. Revelation 19, John, the same author, sees this vision, the same author that wrote this gospel we're looking at, looks up and sees a vision of Christ returning. And this time, he's coming as a king and a warrior. Uh, let me just, let's just read this passage. Here's what John sees. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Boy, does that sound familiar? First, that opening part of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, blah, 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 blah. Then verse 14, that same chapter, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking about Jesus. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. You might see this somewhere in Scripture about Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. So to believe in Jesus Christ allows you to avoid the judgment and be ushered into eternal life. To refuse him is to receive judgment and be ushered into eternal condemnation. Jesus is appealing and has continued to appeal to humanity in every way that he can. He tells us, look, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. Nothing makes my love more available, more noteworthy than the fact that I'm willing to go to the cross and take the punishment you deserve for you, but to access that gift you need to accept the giver of the gift. If you refuse, I'm going to give you what you've requested, which is not to be in my kingdom, but to go it alone and see how that goes for you. And in making this clear, Jesus is declaring that this is exactly what God his Father has directed and commanded him to say, and what Jesus is commanded to say is intended to lead us as human beings to believe in him and experience eternal life. So again, Jesus is dead, totally in sync. So God gives an invitation and a command to Jesus to deliver it. Step out of the shadows, step into the light, put all your faith in believing in Christ. Doing so honors God, brings light to your earthly existence, provides you an amazing future. Yeah, belief does come with some danger. You might be hassled. You might be persecuted. You might be tempted to compromise, fearing what others might say. But you don't want to go down that path because it just proves that the faith that you have is bogus. So I'll close with this. Years and years ago, on the shipping industry, there were two compasses aboard ships, one on deck, one high up on a mast. And a guy's there watching the sailor climb up on the mast and take a reading. When he comes back down, the guy says, well, why do you have two compasses on this boat? The sailor goes, well, this is an iron vessel. And the iron vessel creates its own magnetic field. The compass down here on the deck it's okay for generally giving the captain an idea where we are, but the compass up there is above the influence 
of the magnetic field down here, and therefore much more accurate, much more true. We always steer our ship and direct our ship based on the one above. I suggest we live our lives that way, because I've got to tell you something. The compass this world is setting out for us is telling you to live like this, do this, believe that, don't do this. No matter where you turn, TV, radio, TV, internet, whatever, the world's compass is giving you some bad information. So go for the compass on top. Let God's truth direct your life because it's still true. And Jesus remains the way, the truth, and the life. Believe it or not. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. It's challenging to us. A little scary sometimes, but you want us to have the full record of what you had to say for us, not just pick and choose our favorite topics. So here we are, your people, who are following you. We believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We're not part of the group that says, oh no, we're not going to deny you that. We're we're not going to believe you're the way. We're not going to believe you're the truth. We're going to have our own ideas about you. And they make up this, this crazy imagination of what, what you really are. Thanks to what you've said to us in Scripture, we know who you are. We can know exactly who you are. We know that you love us. We know you care about us. You want the best for us. And you demonstrated your ability to do something we could not do, die for us and give us eternal life. So we thank you for it. As we take communion this morning, may we reflect on how we are living Reflect on what we're doing, what we're saying. Are they consistent with what we say we believe? Strong, make us stronger. Give us more faith when we are weak in it. Show up in our lives. Do things that make us aware of you, uh, how much you love us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.